Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I'm Dottie Lewis, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's always an honor and a privilege whenever I'm asked to do anything for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's kind of an awesome responsibility because it means that I have to tell the truth. And that's hard. Sometimes I want to tell somebody else's story, but all I have is mine. I want to thank the committee. Um, you've done a great job. This is a real class act. I got a great Easter basket in my room filled with all kinds of goodies and lots of candy, and I'm not sharing. <laughs> but seriously, I've had the opportunity to do some of the behind-the-scenes work for conferences, and I know what it's like, and I can only imagine what it was like to be here on the ground floor. But this is a beautiful hotel and a, um, good people that are running it, and, and uh, I hope it grows and grows as the years go on. Now, about this southern thing. I have a sign on my uh, above my desk at work, and it says, I wasn't born in the South, but I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> and I love it. Um, to let you know a little bit about the family that I grew up in, my real name is Dottie Lou Williams, and I have sisters that are Terry Ann and Mary Sue. And I was born in Pennsylvania. But I think that the good Lord knew that at some point in my life, I'd be living in the South, and he wanted to give me a Southern name. And uh, and I love it, you know. They didn't know what to do with me up North, and they had to ship me South to Statesboro to have some people help me get my act together a few years ago. And and I love it. And, and as Delmer knows, I feel like I'm coming home when I came out here. Um, I had the opportunity or the privilege, really, to get sober in Statesboro with a bunch of folks with a bunch of time. And... Uh, they used to stick me in the car and take me with them when they went to speak. And I'd say, where are we going? And they'd say, it doesn't matter. Just be ready with your suitcase and we'll pick you up. And I got to come here. And then I had a job where I traveled. And I got to come to this area of the country four, five, six times a year. And I love it. Now, I can uh, I can say y'all, I love to eat fish and I can clean and fillet them with the best of them but I haven't mastered grits yet. And the only way I can eat them is to put, you're going to die, brown sugar and milk and raisins and nuts and whip them all up and act like they're oatmeal. So uh, if does two out of three count? My job tonight is to tell you what I used to be like and what happened and, and what I'm like today. And I love to talk about my recovery. In some ways, it's kind of been almost as eventful as my drinking. And I'm one that believes that, that my life today is truly beyond my wildest dreams. And, and I have a life today that I didn't know was possible. I didn't know that this was what life was supposed to be like. But I need to tell you a little bit about, you know, what my life was like before. It doesn't take very long for me to qualify. You'll get it right away. Uh, and then I can go on to the good stuff. I was born in a little town in Pennsylvania. I'm the eldest of four children. It used to be necessary for me to stand up here and tell you who was doing what to whom 
and who was drinking and how much and all that stuff, but I've gotten a little better in my recovery. And so suffice to say that there was drinking in my family, um, and I wasn't the only one. I lived in a little town, a little blue-collar town, and, and my house looked just like everybody else's house on the street. But if you came to my house at 5 o'clock when my daddy was coming home from work, you'd see the yelling and screaming and gnashing of teeth. You'd, uh, you'd hear the deadly silences. Sometimes you'd have to step over somebody. Sometimes we didn't have enough food to eat. I used to moan about my biggest problem when I came to this program was that I grew up without store-bought clothes. Um, what do we say in the South? Croker sack dresses. We used to call them feed bag dresses. My grandma used to make them for me, and they were really cute. But I hated that. And I grew up thinking I was different. And I grew up thinking my family was different. And I was ashamed of them. And I hated what my life was like. And I felt like I didn't belong and like I didn't fit in and like I didn't have a best friend. All those things that I know today that most of us that come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous feel like. I didn't have the inside road on that. And there was some stuff going on in my family that shouldn't be happening to little kids. I was sexually abused by my dad from the time I was a little girl until I was well into my teenage years. But what is real important for, for you to know is that none of that stuff is why I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because when I drink, something happens in my body that doesn't happen with social drinkers, whoever they are, you know. Everything that I say tonight is just my opinion or something that somebody told me or something that I read, and I usually remember at least half of it. And uh, I'd like to be known as Big Book Thumper. I read the big book all the time in the steps, but I can't remember. Uh, so I, I'm not very good at quoting them. I'm a product of good sponsorship and a lot of meetings. Alcoholics Anonymous literature and a lot of love and support and understanding from people like you. This town that I grew up in and this uh, family that I grew up in and this school that I went to, it was real little. And uh, you have a nice way of saying things here in the South that kind of makes my story get cleaned up a little bit. And one of them is I lost my principles at an early age. And what that means to me is I did whatever it took to get what I needed to get. See, my mom was a nurse, and, and she used to have pills in her top drawer. And near as I can remember, about nine years old, I found out what they were like. And I loved what they did for me. And I respect the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And to me, uh, my pills were like freeze-dried booze. They were just in a different form. And sometimes it got me where I needed to go a little bit quicker. See, I was a throwing up drunk, and pills didn't make me do that. And by the time I was 11, I was drinking. And I'm not going to tell you I drank every day. I didn't. Um, I came from a family where there was alcohol, and there was lots of alcohol and family functions. And I don't think 11 was the first time I had a drink. But it's the first time that I really remember it. And I'd go into my dad's liquor cabinet, and we'd get the bottles that were dusty way in the back, and I'd pull it out. And... I was a bottle marker long before I came to the program of Al-Anon. I'm a double winner. So I'd mark that bottle with a pencil and I'd drink. And then I'd fill it back up with water so that nobody would know. Today I know that there were probably other people in my family that were doing the same thing. <laughs> and I often wondered who got the water. 
<laughs> but that's how it all started. And you mix booze, and you mix boys, and you mix with some of that other stuff that doesn't mix good, make good telling, and, and that's what I was like. When I got to this program, it was real important for me to know what kind of a drunk I was. You know, whether I was a high bottom or a low bottom. Whether I was crazy or sane. Whether I was a daily drinker or a periodic. What kind of booze I drank the most and all that kind of stuff. And You know, I know today that I was all of those things. I heard it said that alcoholism was controlled and uncontrolled drinking. And that's what mine looked like too. There were times that I just couldn't drink every day. Sometimes because my health was so bad. Sometimes because it wasn't available or it wasn't really socially appropriate. And sometimes I just drank to get as drunk as I could, as fast as I could, and end up under the bridge. So alcoholism for me wears very different, a lot of very different faces. And the family that I grew up in, that's what it looked like too, and it was real confusing took me a few years in this program to try to get all that family stuff straightened out. And, you know, real lucky I tell my kids and my family, we know what's wrong with us. It's called alcoholism. We don't have to worry about if you got psychiatric problems or you need a little medication or whatever. What you need to do is to get your body to Alcoholics Anonymous and to stop drinking. Or you need to get your body to the program of Al-Anon and get some recovery from what you grew up with. By the time I was, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, I'd already lost a lot of stuff because of my drinking. And this is years before I even figured out that I was an alcoholic. If the truth be known, I don't think I figured out that I was an alcoholic till I started coming to AA meetings. And then, you know, the light bulb went on. See, I was one of those that everything in my life was your fault. Those people did me. What's that call? They done me wrong. That was my theme song. But I was junior high school, and uh, I'm fortunate in, in being able to have a God-given talent to play the piano. And that's my passion today. And I took piano lessons and gave some concerts as a kid. But by the time I got to be in junior high school, who wanted to practice? You know, I'd rather be out in the back of barns with the boys than practicing the piano. Somebody else was there, huh? And I was a pretty good athlete. Back then, smoking cigarettes in the back of the bus was a no-no, and they asked me not to come anymore. I was not the kind of kid that got invited to birthday parties or later on the senior prom. You know, I wasn't that kind of girl. I had a pretty good brain, and I did well in school, and I used to like to do extra credit reports. The reality is I did about anything, sometimes positive, sometimes not so positive, to get the attention that I so desperately craved. And by the time I was in junior high school, my grades really started to go down because I'd lose books, and I never did my homework. I like to go to the brownies and the Girl Scouts because you get all those badges. You know, to this day, I still like that stuff. You do something and you get a badge. I like that. I was taking the uh, booze and the medicine bottles to the campouts, and, and they asked me not to come anymore. That's what alcoholism looked like, you know. This day and age, sometimes we have kids walking in these rooms that did just those kind of things. And they figured out that they got a drinking problem, and thanks to good Lord, some of them are able to stop and to get on with their life, but that's not my story. I believe in angels, and 
Angels to me are people that God puts in my path to show me the way. One of those angels was my phys ed teacher in high school. And I know today that uh, Mrs. Stover came to me and asked, said, Dottie Lou, what are you going to do when you finish high school? And I didn't know. And she made arrangements and helped me get a scholarship to a university in Boston. And when I was just 17 years old, that's where I went. I know today that Mrs. Stover's son, or Mrs. Stover's husband, died of chronic active alcoholism. I like to think in some way she didn't know what was going on with me. She knew what was going on in my family. And she was one of those angels that, that helped me to get out. Because, you see, I knew if I could get out of that small town, I could start over. I have a Grammy that just died a few weeks ago at 103 years old. And my Grammy was, I call her the cookie lady in my life. She was the one that was always there with milk and cookies to hug me and love me and to say, oh, Dottie Lou, no matter what I did. And my grandma used to say to me things like, the golden rule, treat others like you would have, you know, you would like to be treated and get enough rest and get outside every day and eat your vegetables and, you know, live the kind of life that the good book talks about and, I needed to get to Alcoholics Anonymous and hear it in a different way to be able to learn things like eat my vegetables and get enough sleep. But I, uh, Grammy was there for me and I kind of plopped off to Boston. I know what I wanted to say is uh, I'm really nervous tonight. Um, it was that at 2 o'clock in the morning in my heart of hearts, I hated the person that I had become. I was 17 years old. I didn't want to be doing those things. I didn't want to have people talk about me the way they were talking about me. I wanted to be the kind of kid that Grammy wanted me to be and that my sister and brother was. But I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know what to do. And, and I couldn't tell anybody. See, when I was in high school, junior high, I told my guidance counselor, a couple of things that were going on. And she said, oh, Dottie Lou, you come from a wonderful family. Your brother plays football. Your father and mother are pillars of the church, and you have a dog. Everything will be fine. And I learned that you don't ever tell anybody anything. And I carried a lot of those secrets into this program. But I went to Boston to seek my fortune and to start over, and I knew it was going to be different this time. Nobody would know me. I wouldn't have to do those things. I could have real friends and get back in living the kind of life I wanted to live. But what happened was I met the two uh, roommates, and we ran into somebody else, and we tromped across the street to the Sigma Chi fraternity house. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I love Southern men. And they had those little Madras shirts and khaki pants and tassel loafers, and I wanted me one. And, uh, we had mixed drinks. I think that's the first I ever had one of those. You know, in Quakertown, you drank warm beer out of quarts, the back of cars and barns and stuff. And we looked good and they looked good and that was going to be a nice night. But you know what happened to me is what always happens to me. I drank too much, too fast, till it was all gone, till I blacked out, did all the stuff that doesn't make good telling threw up, embarrassed myself and everybody. And I came to the next day in my little dormitory room with these two roommates who I hadn't known for 24 hours. And they're looking at me with those eyes of disgust. 
that at least as this alcoholic came to know very well in later years. And I remember thinking, my God, how has this happened? It was going to be different. And there it was one more time. I moved, but I took myself with me, me and my alcoholism. And I lasted for two years in that school, and I drank my way out and flunked out, got married and pregnant, not in that order. And then, like, we couldn't figure out how it happened, and so I had another one. <laughs> and I guess I was a teenage mother two times over. And again, you know, good sponsorship and a little bit of time in this program enables me to realize that my perception of what was going on might not have been the truth, and it might not have been other people's perceptions. And today I understand how awful it must have been for my parents. You know, this is a little small town, and everybody knew what I was like before I went away, and I think they thought I was going to be better and different too, but I wasn't. And I married a man that came from a pretty upstanding, respectable New England family. His mother took one look at me and uh, was went to her bed. And that hurt my feelings. Um, and that marriage lasted for six years. I was ill-equipped to take care of myself, as you might imagine, much less to be a mother to two little kids that happened to be chronically sick, and a husband. And I know today that George did the best he could. He was trying to go to school and then graduate school and hold down a job and do some stuff around the house, and I was a local crazy lady. See, the way that my alcoholism hurt the people around me the most was by my unpredictability and by me being unavailable. You know, he would come home from working or from studying, and he didn't know if I was going to be drunk in my bed. Sometimes there really were cookies and milk, and I did the Donna Reed, uh, Susie Homemaker number. He didn't know if the kids were going to be clean and fed. Sometimes he came home and there was a note on the door, you know, the heck with you, I've gone to my parents with or without the children. It was awful. He never knew how I was going to be. I didn't know how I was going to be. We really didn't have very much money. But, you know, I always found the people that drank like I wanted to drink. You know, I found the women that propped the doors and played bridge and listened to the kids on intercoms and drank a whole lot. Or I was the one that organized the little potluck dinners and found the people that had the extra money to buy the beer and the wine, and, and I did that. That was the beginning of my nervous breakdowns, too. I always forget this. And I think today, I know there's such a thing as a clinical nervous breakdown, but let me tell you what mine were like. He'd done me wrong. The kids were crying too much. They were in and out of the hospital with a chronic illness. The neighbors didn't like me because they were complaining because of the fight. Um, and so what I'd kind of do was, like, crack up. And they'd take me off someplace. And back then we had good insurance. And so I went to go to some pretty fine places. But you know what? I don't remember anything about about that. I mean, I'm sure there must have been some kind of therapy and stuff. I remember they gave you lots of those freeze-dried booze in the form of pills because my nerves were shot, you understand. I couldn't sleep, and then I couldn't get up, and then I couldn't function during the day. You know, you'd have to find just the right amount to kind of level you out. And you know what I remember about that? And this is really sick, but it's the truth. I remember it feeling like it was summer camp for grown-ups because I could do arts and crafts, and my mother took care of the kids. 
And then I'd be there for a, a period of time, and then they'd say I was better, and I'd go home. And nothing had changed. You can tell responsibility won one of my strong points. But anyway, George found another woman. Can you imagine that? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have stayed married to somebody like me. I really wouldn't have. And, you know, today he and Claudia are still married, and they have another family, and they're very happy. And I used to say that I wouldn't recognize him if he came down the street. But, you know, God has a sense of humor. One of my kids got married not too long ago, and George was at the wedding, and I recognized him. <laughs> and I guess more important, he recognized me. You know, and i got to tell you that I still have trouble with reality sometimes, you know. I just have this scenario of what it's going to be like, you know, the music. <laughs> and it's not how it was. He said, oh, hello. And how are you? It, it, it wasn't good, you know. And what you had taught me, because thank God for the steps in this program, you had taught me that the way to make amends to that man was to stay out of his life and to wish him well. And that's what I did. And we could be there for our son to be married. And I wasn't fighting with him. And neither, I wasn't drunk. I don't even, you know what, I don't even know if he drank back then. Isn't that something? He didn't look like he was drinking very much then. And we got young Bill married. And he was able to be there. And you know why I was able to be nice to that man? I'd like to tell you because I got elevated to sainthood. It's because I sat in rooms like this with men like you who had lost families and had kids that were getting married and they went to the wedding because that was the thing to do. And maybe they weren't wanted and maybe nobody really talked to them very much, but they went anyway because it was the right thing to do. And I heard you talking about that. And I saw your pain. And I was real proud that you were able to do that and do the right thing. And so when George came to that wedding, because he hadn't been a part of those kids' life for 25 years, because of that, I was able to treat him with respect and to be happy that he was there. Because I'd seen you, you know, I'd, I'd seen it on the other side. Life rocked along. I moved back to the area that I grew up with. My parents made my sister come to live with me, and that made me mad. They felt like if I had a man in my life or somebody living with me, they wouldn't have to worry about me, and somebody would be there to help with the kids. made me really mad, but it was the truth. I needed somebody. I'm not good with years. My kids said I have lied about my age so long that I don't even know how old I am. And I hardly know how they are. And I'm certainly not very good about knowing how many years were in this part of my story or that part of my story. I'm here to tell you I was doing other things than counting years. But for four or five years, I was divorced and I lived with my sister. And those were the years as the big book talks about the four horsemen. And that's what I was living. And the total incomprehensible demoralization. Those words say it all to me. See, that was the time when there were men in and out of the house. I found it necessary to peddle my body. I know today that's called prostitution. Because I needed money, I thought. And that was the time when uh, my kids had little keys around their neck coming home from school long before it was popular to be a latchkey kid. And that's when there was lots of yelling and screaming. And that's when sometimes there wasn't enough food to eat. Yes, I was on welfare for a year or two. And it was tough. But you know what? I always had money for booze. You don't buy booze with food stamps. At least not in Pennsylvania. 
And my kids were growing up in the home that I hated. And everything that happened to me was now happening in our home except for the sexual abuse. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, sometime, when I'd come to, before I'd take the next drink, I hated it. I hated what I had become. I hated what my life was. But I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know who to tell. Now, I know I read everything that came in the house. I know there's that Reader's Digest article about I am Bill's liver. I mean, I am Joe's liver, you know, and that kind of stuff. And I know we're there with those 20 questions about are you an alcoholic? But, you know, I guess denial is wonderful, and, and I don't remember it. And life rocked on. I couldn't hold down a job, so I went back to school, because that was easier than trying to work from 9 to 5. I was a social worker. I was going to heal the world. It's a scary thought, isn't it? But I graduated from school, and I got a good job, and the kids and I had a nice place to live, and my sister finally moved out and got married. And One more time, I was going to start over, and it was going to be different. And best as I remember it, one night I rolled over and said to the man next to me, why don't we get married? And he said he guessed it would be all right. <laughs> and that married last, marriage lasted for about 15 years. I was drunk. I don't know what his story was. But you know what? He's another angel in my life. I'd be dead today and you'd have another speaker if it wasn't for Bill. He was older than I was. I was a Yankee Yuppie Trophy wife. And uh, we moved to a suburban town in New Jersey. I lived in a house that I never thought that that's how people lived. I had a green station wagon with wood on the side. I learned to play tennis and bridge and we had a dog and the kids went to good school and summer camp and country club and all that kind of stuff. I thought I was a princess. I didn't know that people lived like that. Maybe you wouldn't think it was a big deal, but for a little kid from Quakertown, Pennsylvania, it was a big deal. But I can tell you what happened. I found out about cocktail parties. They're grown-up fraternity parties. found out about the country club with five bars up the street from our house. It was cold in New Jersey. We had this old house, and the pipes banged, and... And you understand, and the kids were getting older with more problems, and and I had to drink. I had to go to doctors to take pills because my nerves were shot. Oh, insanity was alive and well in my life. I married a man that was a little older than I was, and I couldn't handle my own two kids, so I married a man that had three more. So I inherited a teenage daughter that was 13, and I know today you should give them to the gypsies and pick them up at 19 or 20, but I was going to be the perfect stepmother, and I got two little boys that were exactly the same age as my two little boys, so we had two first graders and two second graders like our own Cub Scout den. You want to know why I took Valium? You want to know why I found the morning drink? And that's what my life was like. I know what it's like to go to football games and fall up the, the bleacher steps. I know what it's like to go to church and have a big fight at a potluck dinner. I belong to a denomination where we have wine for communion and my kids at the altar boys were drinking it. So we just yanked them out and went to another church. I know what it's like to try to go to those PTA back-to-school nights and bake cookies and, oh, please, God, may I never have to do that again. And you gotta get just the right amount of booze in your system so you can kinda do what you have to do without keeling over and, and that wasn't able for me to do that very well. And by this point I was living on the, uh, third floor of my rather large house by myself. 
I was very lonely. I didn't feel like I fit in. I really didn't have very many friends. Everybody loved Bill. He was a wonderful husband and father. And, and I hated that. I made, you know, I made his life miserable and hated him even more. And my kids were growing up and they didn't want me to be around. And they weren't bringing kids into the house. And, and you fill in the blanks. Because I think if you're here tonight, you probably either drank like I did or you lived in a house where there was drinking. I think most of us don't end up in Bainbridge, Georgia on a Thursday night before Palm Sunday because we got nothing else to do. But that's what my life was like. In the beginning of the end or the beginning of the beginning, my oldest natural son, Kevin, was 15 years old and he had a convulsion in the living room floor on May 1st, 1983. And that's when we knew what the problem was in our family. It was a combination of alcohol and drugs and he convulsed. Another angel that God put in my life was a man named Malcolm, and I hope someday I meet him again. He went to one of those many churches that we went to. I told you we change churches like people change underwear. And and Malcolm shared with us that he was a recovering alcoholic, and he invited my husband and I to his first birthday party. And it was a room much like this with about this many people, and there was a woman speaker, and I don't remember that, and they had a birthday cake, and I don't remember much about that. But I turned to my husband, and I said, I can feel all the love in this room. Isn't this a wonderful way to live? The seed was planted. Malcolm gave me a 24-hour book, and my 24-hour book is dated before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I read it every day. I never thought it said anything about alcohol. I just thought it was a good way to live. Attraction, not promotion. So we called Malcolm, and I said, does AA do anything for kids? Malcolm came to our home and made today what I know is a 12-step call, scooped Kevin up and took him to a hospital and a bunch of men from Alcoholics Anonymous came and found a place for Kevin to go. And he went off to treatment. And Malcolm's wife came and she took me to my first Al-Anon meeting. And this is my plug for Al-Anon. Twelve steps in Al-Anon are exactly the same as in Alcoholics Anonymous, except the twelfth step where we say carry the message to alcoholics, they say carry it to others. And to be a good member of Al-Anon doesn't just mean that you love an alcoholic. It means that you go to meetings, and you have a sponsor, and you work the steps, and you do service work. And I'd invite any of you to go to an open, mem- uh, open meeting of Al-Anon, because the reality is they're not talking about us. They live with us. They're trying to get their acts together and find a life for themselves, whether or not we, the alcoholic, stay sober. And I went to that meeting in the church basement around the corner from my house. And lo and behold, there were these women that I realized I hadn't seen in a while. And I listened. And they were telling things that I'd never told anybody. It's like they had peeked in my kitchen window. And I cried and carried on. And and uh, they said, oh, honey, don't worry. It's just nerves and anxiety. And I know today it was Valium and booze withdrawal. I was detoxing in the rooms of Al-Anon because, see, at this treatment center where they sent my son, they said that they suggested that everybody in the family stop drinking it. This is how I remember it, as a show of support for the kid that was in treatment. And if you had a problem with that, ha, 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 come and talk to a counselor. So I didn't have a problem, so I think I stopped drinking. The kids say I didn't, but I think at least I got back. In any case, now I'm Mrs. Al-Anon, and I'm driving around with all this Al-Anon literature in my car. You know how awful we are when we're new in a program, and I'm saving the world. 
and my red-haired kid that's 14 years old with freckles and braces and the apple in my eye, he's a good kid in our family, said, Mommy, I can't stop drinking. I know it was Kevin's fault. He made him do it. But then Bill told me how the bicycle accident that he had, and he laid it on the hood of this lady's car. She didn't hit him. He hit her because he was drunk. And how he was not just a common, everyday burglar, but he broke into houses not to steal TVs, but to steal booze. And how when I thought he was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed first thing in the morning, when I came down to uh, make breakfast, he was coming in from the night before. So we call Malcolm, and Malcolm comes one more time and gathers up Bill and sticks him in a hospital and sends him off to treatment. And the other kids, go, Lee was out of the house, and the other kids go to their other parents. And I go to Al-Anon. And I was very quiet in that house for a few months, because you see, there wasn't much between me and me. Wasn't anybody around really to blame it anymore. I was going to meetings every night. I lived in an area where I could do that. I'd go to work, I'd come home, I'd eat, and I'd go to a meeting. And my husband was going to Al-Anon also. And then the kids came home, and the alcoholic kids went to AA, and the parents went to Al-Anon, and the other kids went to Alateen. And we're really fortunate because we had a year of sobriety and recovery in our family. And we got hooked up with other people and other families that were trying to do the same thing that we were. We learned about sober fun and picnics and conferences and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was really neat. But it wasn't to last. Because, see, I was at a business function... And a tray of, I said I was never going to drink again, remember? And a tray of drinks went by and I grabbed one. And then I grabbed a second one. And the next thing I know, I came to on the highway, which is kind of scary around New York City, in a blackout and went back in and came to the next day in my office. And I didn't know if I had my pajamas on or yesterday's clothes and what had happened. And I was terrified. Because, see, I heard in open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'd been going to that if you drank and you didn't want to, you might have a problem. That's what I heard. So that night, instead of going downstairs to Al-Anon, I went upstairs to AA. I didn't think I was that bad. I just drank the night before, but, you know, I thought I'd come and check it out. And you know, there was some old fart there that said, Welcome, we're glad you're here, we've been waiting for you. And it, and it hurt my feelings. hurt my feelings bad. But, you know, my kids had been in that room for almost a year. And they were talking about what they had lived with and what it was like. And so I went to AA. I used to say I did the best I could. I just did whatever it is. I did. I came late to meetings and I left early. I didn't have a pager, but if I did, you can bet that it would have gone off in the meeting so I could leave. I always came dressed to the nines to let you know that I was better than you were. I did not wash ashtrays because I didn't smoke. And, and back then in New Jersey where I got sober, we had coffee cups that we had to wash, and I wasn't going to do that either. I got a sponsor and I never called her. I got a big book because one of my kids gave it to me. I mostly went to open speaker meetings, and I just made sure that I wasn't like you. In, uh, in New Jersey, where I got sober the first time, we say to people, sit back and relax and listen to the speaker and try to identify and not compare. Well, I just had sat there with my checklist to make sure that I wasn't like you all. But I kept coming. And then... My husband had a massive heart attack, and he almost died. And I came face-to-face -face with that ugly word that we call today dependency, codependency. And I realized that if he died, I was going to die too. Now, how sick is that? But that's how it was for me. Bill's alive and well today, and his heart's still ticking away. But I was really scared that I was going to lose him, and I was terrified. 
But you see, I never told anybody anything, so I certainly didn't tell them that I was scared. I hardly told them what was going on. And I kept going to meetings. And then Kevin, he was my oldest natural son, he got drunk again the night of his senior prom and beat up his date and threw tables and did all that stuff that we do so well. And uh, I said, Kevin, you can't live in this house anymore like that because this is a sober household. <laughs> Can we just sing a little bit? <laughs> but anyway, we told Kevin he had to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous and get his act together. He couldn't live there anymore. And what he told me in rather graphic language that he didn't want to live here anymore. And so he moved in with the neighbors and told them exactly what we were like until he stole some things from them and they invited him to move on. And we didn't know where Kev was for about a year and a half. Didn't know if he was dead or alive. What I used to forget was what happened to me. What happened to me was I went to the doctor because my nerves were shot and I couldn't sleep. Learned how to buy drugs on the street. I went back to drinking. And what happened to me is everything that you told me was going to happen if you started drinking again. I know what it's like to have auditory hallucinations. I used to think Kennedy was speaking to me out of the loudspeaker in my bedroom. And you all know about the radio <laughs> that nobody else can hear and you can't turn off? I was hiding bottles all over the place. I was wet in the bed. I was coming to on the floor and my muscles were like rubber and I couldn't make it to the bathroom. I'd look at the uh, clock and it'd be 7 o'clock and it'd be dark outside and, and I didn't know if it was going to be morning or night. But I think the worst part was is that I'd put my... Uh, green bathrobe on that I've been living in for the last few months, and I descend to the first floor of my home like I was the princess, and I go in the kitchen to try to make a cup of coffee in the microwave. And somebody was always in that kitchen, and they'd look at me with those same eyes of disgust that my college roommates had how many years, and I'd be embarrassed, and I'd be ashamed. And I'd do the only thing I could do, which was go back upstairs and find the bottle and drink some more, and I hoped that this time I didn't wake up. You know, we talk about in this program that the alcoholic has to be ready. They waited till I was ready. We have another speaker tonight. I've learned just to tell my story. All of this time, I was still going to meetings because I had no place else to go, and I'm glad that I could go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings drunk as long as I uh, wasn't making any noise. One of the things that came to me when it came to amends time in my family when I got sober was that I was in those meetings drunk, in the same meetings with my kids that were trying to stay sober. And thank God for men in this program that took my kids to the corner of the room and said, your mom deserves to be here as much as you do, and she's just trying to get sober. But I think of how embarrassing it must have been for them. My son tells it best. He said, you know how my mom is. They used to say, does anybody have a problem? And drunk, she'd put up her hand and she'd have a problem. You know, that's what I was like. But they let me keep coming. And finally, some women from my women's group came and they cleaned me up and they took me to a meeting and the meeting was on me and they told me I needed more help. They told me I was going to die and that was fine with me. I wanted to die. Because, see, my theme song was I tried shirts, I tried shrinks, I tried all this other stuff and I tried Alcoholics Anonymous and it didn't work. I know today it works just fine if you do what it's supposed to do. You know, we talk about rarely have we seen a person fail. I thought I was a rarely. I know today I was just lazy and unwilling. But somebody in that meeting gave me a 
phone number with a 912 area code in it, and they said if I called that number, they could help me. And I did, and they basically said, come on down. And I got on a plane from New York City. I thought I was going to Atlanta, because certainly if somebody as cosmopolitan as me would have to go to a big city to be able to get help, you understand. They told me not to drink or they wouldn't take me, or otherwise I would have taken off in the airport, I know. But I got to Savannah, Georgia, and they picked me up, and we drove and drove and drove, and it was hot as blazes in August. And you had these funky pine trees that I'd never seen before with just stuff on the top, and the dirt was red, and it talked funny, and it was hot. And, and I got to the doors of that treatment center, and the nurse gave me a big hug and said, We love you. We're glad you're here, and we've been waiting for you. And that was the beginning of my recovery. I wasn't that bad, you understand, and so I was only going to have to spend a week or so in the 28-day program, and I spent 10 weeks in the hospital and more than another year in a halfway house. And you know what? That's where I met some of you people in this room, and you know who you are. Because I was loud, proud, arrogant, and very sick. And it didn't matter. You'd stick out your hand, and you'd give me a hug, and you'd say, we're glad you're here. And I'm so fortunate that the halfway house that I lived in believed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to three meetings a day because we went to the AA clubhouse that was down the street. And every time the door opened, we were there. And we worked the steps. We started with one and went to 12. And when you're there as long as I do, you got to do them a whole lot. And they taught me about four and five in inventories and six and seven where I couldn't get rid of this stuff, but God could, and what if he were soft? And then we came to 8 and 9, and that was really hard. Because, you see, I had about 18 family members on the list, and some of them I went to in person, and some of them by letter. And for the most part, they said things like, you're going to do it again anyway. We know what you're like. Why should you get credit for doing something that you should have been doing all along, which is the truth? Nobody said, we love you, we're glad you're back in the family, and we wish you well. But see, they'd lived for me for a lot of years with a lot of hurt. But I just kept doing what you all told me to do. I learned about inventories every night. And I learned about turning my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. And then you said, it says, as I understand him, so I better find a God that I understand. And you taught me about God. In that halfway house, I learned about praying and meditating because that's what everybody did. And every afternoon at 4 o'clock, we went to our room. And I was still jerking and carrying on and couldn't sleep. And so I put in an AA tape. And I'd listen. And I'd kind of doze off. And you know, to this day, sleeping isn't one of my strong points. And most nights, I put in an AA tape. And that voice just kind of lulls me to sleep. I learned about meditating because they taught me how to do it. See, when you're like I am and you're running around crazy all the time, God couldn't speak to me if he wanted to. I learned at the beginning of meditation is to learn to sit quietly. And that's what I learned to do. Learned about service work. They let they gave me a key to the clubhouse when I was about eight or nine months sober. I thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I know today they just wanted somebody to make coffee for the eleven thirty meeting so they didn't have to go so early. But it made me feel like I was a part of and like I belonged. And I don't know about your group, but in my group, coffee makers don't get drunk. And so that's what I did. I saved a little bit of money while I was there. 
and I was able to get this car, and I had a royal blue and white 1972 Chevelle with black plastic seats. And I thought I was the cat's pajamas. And they'd let me drive all of two blocks to the AA meeting, you know. And sometimes I could even go out of town. So my God has a sense of humor, and he knows what it takes to keep this alcoholic humble. Because, see, when I went back to my Mercedes town, I was still driving this car. And I was embarrassed. And I was humiliated. And I was trying to pass it off as an antique, if the truth be known. <laughs> and my sponsor says, when somebody says to you, that's an old car, you will say, yes, isn't it? <laughs> and I drove that car for a couple of more years, and then I gave it to my son's sponsor, and he's since died, and somebody else is driving that car to meetings in Tawaka, New Jersey. When I was about 14 or 15 months sober, they told me it was time to go home. And I didn't want to leave. And Dot Mooney, who's my forever sponsor, said to me, Dottie, if this, I said, this is my family like I've never had. I never knew what it was like to have people like this in my life. She said, if we were your biological family, you'd have to grow up and move away from home, but you can always come back. So I packed up and I went back to my town in New Jersey. And there was no ribbon around the oak tree. There was no banner that said, Welcome Home, Mom. And I called back to Doc crying, and I said, There's no place for me in this family. Well, how could there be a place? I'd gone for almost a year and a half, and I was drunk for years before that. They kept my place. They'd be in sad shape. And so you know what I did? I did what you taught me to do. I used the tools that I was given in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went. I was unemployable. So I went to two meetings a day. And I was fortunate that we had a noon meeting every day for women. And I'm one that believes, just for this alcoholic, that the women stay with the women and the men with the men. And what I say is the pink booties with the pink booties and the blue booties with the blue booties. And that's worked very well to this day for me. And those women taught me how to be a kind and loving wife. And they said a kind and loving wife greets her husband at the door and says, how was your day, dear, and listens for ten minutes. <laughs> I didn't care how his day was. But I learned to take direction. And you know why? Not because I was bucking for sainthood, because I was terrified that I was going to drink. I was terrified that I was going to drink. And I had a taste of the life that you had, and I wanted it. And so I did that. They told me that I needed to be a member of the community. And so I did the Red Cross Blood Bank for the years that I was there. They told me that the kids that were still at home were pretty well grown. And what I needed to do was to be their parent and just be there for them. And they said, what that looked like when you went to the football game sober and somebody said, how are you doing? You say, fine, thank you. How are you? You don't go into all the ins and outs of your aches, pains, and problems. And I learned to do that. And then when I was three years sober, my husband told me he wanted a divorce. He would have thought we were the all-American marriage. I laughed. I went to my home group crying and sobbing and carrying on. The reality is I know today that if love isn't fed, it dies. And that love had died a long time ago. That man was ravaged by my alcoholism, his, hers, ours, and everybody's. And he felt that he needed to move on. And I told him I didn't care what he did. I didn't want a divorce. And I kept going to meetings. And then stuff started to happen in our family. It became necessary for me to leave. And I remember what Dot said. She said I could always come back. So I called her up. And on a February day, about ten years ago, I packed my 15 boxes in my car, sold the dining room furniture to move my grand piano. I'm still alcoholic. And I headed south. 
and I came through this horrendous snowstorm, as only we can have in New Jersey with that wet, gooky snow and the trucks. And the last thing my husband said to me was, maybe you should wait until tomorrow because it's such a bad storm. Well, you know, no way. So I drove and I drove and I got a motel room. And the next day I got up and I drove into the sunrise in South South Carolina. And I opened the the sunroof of my new little car. And I prayed my, played my really loud Baptist music. And I knew I was coming home. Coming back to my people. And I moved into Dot's home. Somebody was talking about it where the, uh, the treatment center started and kind of ran it as a family center. And people from AA and recovering people and family members and everybody came in and out of that home all the time. See, I believe that everything I lost because of my sobriety, or even things that I never had because I was a drunk, God gives back to me in one form or another. And so I had a family. I was surrounded by people every morning, 15, 18 of them. And I made muffins and coffee, and we read our little books at the counter, and it was wonderful. And then they asked me to work full time, and I had the opportunity to travel around the state of Georgia doing things with... Uh, alcoholics and their families, and that's how I came to know this part of the country. And I loved it. And you all welcomed me with open arms. And I learned about a pig picking in America, and I learned about fish fries and cusper, and a few other things. And I loved it. And then boy meets girl on AA campus. And I fell in love with a member of this program that I've known for some years. And sometimes I wonder how I got myself into this mess. And what I realized was, we bought an engagement ring and I'd never had one. And I'd never had a real wedding. And I'd never had a wedding gown. And Donna Reed was alive and well in my mind. And I didn't really talk to anybody about it. And those that I did cautioned me. So you don't understand. I'm different. And so I left the job that I loved and the, and the town that I loved and the people that I loved. And I moved to St. Simon's Island to be married. And what I need to tell you was is what happened to me and the lessons that I learned. Because after two years, it became necessary for me to leave, and it didn't work. And it has been the most painful time in my life, borrow none. I exaggerate a lot. But especially in sobriety. And let me tell you how God got my attention. I went to the state convention in all bayonets and heard the Aladon speaker. She talked about getting as sick as your secret. And I sobbed in a way that I had not sobbed at a speaker meeting in many years. And we went back to the room that night, and I said, this is not okay. This is what has to change. What I learned, what I did was what you taught me. You don't listen to the words, you look at the actions. And by December, it hadn't changed. And I went to hear Carissa, who you'll hear tomorrow speak. And she talked about what she was living with, the lie. And I cried again. And I went home, and I knew that it had to change. And then God knocked a third time. 
And he sent this judge in my life whose husband got sober, and she came to Al-Anon, and she told, somebody told her to call me, and we talked on the phone. And one day she said, Dottie, what's going on in your home? And I said, oh, nothing. And she told me in some rather graphic terms that she knew what was going on, and if I wanted help, I should call her. And hung up the phone, and I was mad. Who she thinks she's talking to? And two days later, I called her crying and said, I don't know what to do. Please help me. The naked prayer that... This alcoholic prayed more than the day that I wanted to get sober. And she took me by the hand and she led me and I moved out. And the lessons that I have learned. I've learned that when it has to do with me or my kids or people close to me, my reality is really whacked. I need other people, like good friends and a sponsor to help me see what really is there. I learned that there's some, I learned that there's a lot of stuff, most everything I did in the, most everything I think of, I thought of, I, I did when I was drinking. And I want it all in sobriety. I want the ice cream and the hot fudge and the nuts and the whipped cream and the cherry. That's the kind of sobriety that I want. Not everybody wants that. I also found that uh, I had the, also the honor <laughs> dubious distinction of being able to go to Elena Lodge in North Jersey. I don't know if anybody knows about that with Geraldine O'Delaney, G-O-D. Mrs. Delaney used to come around during dinner and she'd put her hands on our shoulders and she said, and how are you today? And I would say, fine, thank you, Mrs. D. And she'd say, according to whose standards? I didn't know what the answer was. You know what the answer is? According to my standards. According to my values and my principles and my, my, my morals. And I was living a lie. And I was living in a way that was not all right with me. And I've learned that this alcoholic can't do that and be comfortable and probably eventually not be able to stay sober. When you have this happen in Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody gets custody of the meetings. And St. Simon's is a small island. But I changed meetings because that's what I needed to do. And, you know, my whole life in sobriety, I've been going to a big book and a step meeting every week, and it works just fine. And then another meeting I went to was either an 11-step workshop or a meeting where we talk a lot about God and, and solutions, not problems. And so guess what? I went to those meetings. And that's what I needed. Because, see, I can whine and moan with the best of them. And if I'm sitting around with people that are talking about the problem, I can get in there. And what I need to be is with people that are talking about the solution, talking about what the big book talks about, talking about what God wants for me in my life today. And that's what I did. I used to um, be doing some state service work some years back, and, uh, and that seemed to work for me. So I became the coffee maker in my new group. And then I became the GSR. And now I go back to making with all my friends. It's good to see some of you here today. It's called giving it away and getting out of myself. I celebrated my 50th birthday living in an unheated garage apartment, and the rent was $300 a month, and I couldn't afford it. And I thought, how has this happened? I'm an upstanding member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I get to sponsor people. Sometimes they want me to speak. I'm doing service work. How has this happened? See, I still have a real problem with justified anger. My sponsor says, just think of it as a character defect and get on with it. But anyway, you know, 
now that I'm sober and I don't act like that anymore, I can't handle it when people act like that to me. Never mind that for a million years, I was like a tornado blowing through people's lives. But I get very high and mighty when stuff isn't fair, and it wasn't fair. But let me tell you what my God's done for me. I figured it out. I didn't figure it out. Gay figured it out for me. She said, Dottie, God didn't bring you to St. Simon's to be married. He brought you to St. Simon's to become a professional pianist. See, I couldn't make enough money doing what I was doing. It's expensive to live there. And even though it's South Georgia, I did have frost on the inside of the windows sometimes. And uh, so I played uh, the piano for somebody's wedding. And then I got asked to play at a few private parties and a few weddings. And then I get asked to play at this really spiffy five-star resort on Sea Island. And then I got asked to play some of those really big houses. And I don't know how much houses, how big houses are and how much they cost, but that's where I play. You know, the ones with the 60-foot living room and they're all glass and they're on the ocean. And they have a gigantic Steinway piano. And I'm all dressed up in my black long dress. And I look out and watch the sunset in the ocean. I don't care if they're listening to me or not. And you know what I think? I think there's no way that a kid like me from Quakertown, Pennsylvania, with the life that I led, ends up in a place like this, doing what I'm doing. One of the women that was really important in my early sobriety used to say, you know, after you get your health back and you get to meetings and you learn about the tools and you get your relationships healed and you get a job, you need a hobby. I don't know what she was talking about. And a hobby, that's something that you can lose yourself in and you're passionate about. It took me 12 years, but for me it's my music. It's a God-given gift I have. I don't like to practice very much. I still don't. But I just love to go and to play. And when I play, I bow my head just like I did before I spoke tonight, and I ask God to use me as a channel and to let his light shine through me. And I like to think that sometimes maybe my music touches somebody else that night. I moved out in July, and I live in a little four-room beach house two blocks from the ocean with heat and air conditioning. One of those dear little 1930s beach houses, and I got a hammock in the front yard and a screen porch and a pink flamingo mailbox. Real touristy. The neighbors think that it's made the property values go down. And I still have my day job, and I work three or four nights a week playing the piano. And I love it. The bills are paid most times. I even got money to pay my taxes when I go back on Monday. My kids. I was told that I make amends and I keep my side of the street clean and I leave theirs to them and God. And I used to look at people in this program and I thought that all you had healing in your family and I was the only one that didn't. And it hurt real bad, especially on holidays and Mother's Day and my birthday. Let me tell you what's happened. Leela is my oldest, was my daughter. And she left home when she was 17, and I really didn't see very much of her until she was 30, and she called me and said that she was getting married, and she wanted me to come to her wedding. And I got off the plane, and she's a beautiful young woman, and I would not have recognized her. But the good news is, we're friends today. And she's presented me with two beautiful grandchildren. They live in Flagstaff, Arizona. I don't get to see them all that much. But you know what my Christmas present was? She and her husband and those two kids, including the month-old baby, got on a plane and came to St. Simon's Island 
to spend Christmas with me. I am truly blessed. I went on a spiritual retreat about three weeks ago, and as part of it, family members could write you letters. And I just read my daughter's letter not too long ago. And it's the most beautiful love letter you could ever get from a kid. She says we had problems. It's a nice way to say it. But since she's been married, she really appreciates our closeness and the things that I taught her. And she understands that I need to live at St. Simon's, but she sure wishes I would closer so her kids could get to know their grandmother better. That's what this program gives you. I have two sons that still aren't part of my life. I like to think that it's probably because they're out there doing whatever it is they're doing. Alcoholism is a family disease, and it's alive and well in my family. Kevin has been in and out of AA for the last 10 or 15 years. But you know what? He knows where there's help, and he doesn't need his mother to point it out. I no longer send him books for holidays and underline. I'm getting better. Kevin called me about a month or so ago, and he said, you know, Mom, I'm going to be 31 years old. My friends are married, and they have all these toys and cars and houses and kids. And he said, I don't know where my life has gone for the last 10 years. And you know what? You have helped me so much. I said, I don't know, Kev. (laughs) And he went, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I don't know, Kev. He doesn't need me to tell him. You've told him. Someday there's going to come a kid through one of those doors in your meeting room and he's going to have long hair and scruffy scruffy clothes and he swears and talks about drugs and please put out your hand because it might be one of my kids and I'll do the same for yours because we don't seem to be able to help our own. I don't know why that is. And then there's young Bill. Bill were asking me about him tonight. And I share this as an example of what the men in Alcoholics Anonymous have done for this drunk mother. My son came into AA at 15 years old. And next month, he'll be 30, with 15 years of sobriety. I take no credit for that. You came, he didn't drive for the first two years in AA, and you came and picked him up every night for a meeting. You told him about taking out the trash and and, and, and making his bed doing those kind of things. You taught him about the steps and you gave him a program for living and values and morals that I would have done if I could have. But I couldn't because I was either drunk or trying to get sober myself. But you were there for him. You were there for his high school graduation when I was in a halfway house and couldn't go home. You were there for him when he struggled with some really icky stuff because he grew up in an alcoholic home too. And three years ago, we had an AA wedding in our family. Bill and Sean were married. And Sean had uh, 10 years of sobriety yesterday. And they've just presented me with Connor. And he's our AA grandson, three weeks old. What recovery can do. I know about the chains of alcoholism. And I like to think in some way the chains of alcoholism are being broken in my family. And I owe it all to you. I owe it all to you. Job, money, my piano, my kids. I'm single and self-supporting and loving it. 
I don't know what else to say. Just ought to tell you about my parents a little bit. I had to get some professional help for what I grew up with about five or six years ago. People in my A group didn't get it, because when I came back from treatment, I looked worse than when I went. But they asked what I could, they could do, and I said, just sit with me, cry with me, hold my hand, make me something to eat, and I'll get better. And I did. Glad my copy of the big book said sometimes you need professional help, and I did. Alcoholics Anonymous can do a lot of things, but couldn't help that part of my life. But I didn't really have much of a contact with my parents for a lot of years, and just about a year ago, I had some professional pictures taken. I had an extra one, and I, one of those God things, I thought, oh, I guess I'll send it to my parents. So I thought, if I send it, I guess you ought to send a postcard. So I said, dear mom and dad, here's a picture of your daughter. And see, I really struggled with some positive things that came out of what I grew up with. And it came to me, and I said, thank you so much for all the years of piano lessons that you gave me. This is where I'm playing today. Love, Dottie Lou. And this is really a God thing. And P.S., maybe you can come and hear me play sometime. And one week later, my mother picked up the phone, and they came down to see me. And let me tell you about healing. I had made amends to my parents years before for not being the kind of daughter they would have liked. An embarrassment in the community is the least of what I was. But when my parents got off that plane, God had erased all of that hurt and all of that stuff. And I was able to give my daddy a hug and tell him I love it and mean it. My parents are older. They're 78 and 80 years old. But I'm fortunate to be able to have some time left to have a relationship with them. My sisters and brothers get together all the time, and they've invited me to the family reunion this year. That means a lot whether or not I go. And you know what? I don't have to talk about who did what to whom and whether it happened or it didn't happen and who's drinking and who isn't. I can just go and be a part of. And that's the ache that I've had in my heart for so long, to have a family and to have roots. You know, and maybe 12 years isn't all that long to wait, because some people never get it. I've had the opportunity to stand in an AA meeting with a sober kid on either side of me saying the Our Father. That's spiritual. I've had the opportunity to speak on a program like this with my two kids. Well, we may never be able to do that again. But I had the opportunity to do it one time because of you people. The answer for all of it to me is spiritual. I have a deeper walk with my God than I've ever had in my whole life. See, my God's a king, and so that means I'm a princess, and I'm special, and I think I'm worth something today, and that's what you all have given me. I lost my concept of God, because when I was in eighth grade and I went to church and the minister was saying, if you do this, this, and this, you're going straight to hell, I'd done it all the night before. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I know that he was making black marks up there on the big blackboard in the sky, and it was all over for me, so I thought, I'm going to really blow this one out and live a good life. That's not how my God is. It hurt him when I was doing those things. But he's patient, and he's loving. Sometimes he prods me a little bit, and sometimes he gives me a good kick. But Alcoholics Anonymous is the one that gave me my God back. And today I'm a member of my church, and you all don't have to do that, but it's important to me. I'm a member of the community. I just got elected to the board of directors for a commission on children and youth. I don't even know how, they don't even know who I am. And I sit in meetings, 
and they'll ask me what I think. And I tell them what I think. You know why? Because it's what you all taught me. And I like to think in some way. Maybe I'm able to help another little girl that was growing up in a house like I grew up in. And maybe there'll be some help for those kind of kids today. Well, that's it. I got a job. I got a passion. I got a community life. I got a family life. I'm a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a life that's truly beyond my wildest dreams. I'd like to end with a little poem that's special to me. Sure, it takes a lot of courage to put things in God's hands, to give our lives completely, our hopes, our dreams, our plans, to follow where he leads us, and to make his will our own. But all it takes is foolishness to go the way alone. And because of a loving and forgiving God, and because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Al-Anon. And because of people like you in rooms like these, this alcoholic doesn't ever have to be alone again. Thank you so much for letting me come and share my life with you tonight. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.